We are moving into uh, the last day of our summer series where we've worked our way through the Psalms. I hope that you have uh, discovered the Psalms in a new way, in a fresh way, and it's no longer just that big book in the middle of the Bible that you read Psalm 23 when someone dies, but you start to look at it as a place to go when you're hurting, a, a place to go when you're celebrating, a place to go when you're angry, a place to go when you're happy. The Psalms contain the most authentic um, revelation of the heart of the followers of Jesus. Most of them are poetry and song. Oh, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful trip through them. Today's the final day. We've been looking at a conversation over the summer put out by Fuller Theological Seminary between Eugene Peterson, prolific Christian author, um, translator of the full Bible into a version called The Message, uh, and Bono. You may have heard of Bono before, lead singer of U2. Many of you don't know, though, or might not have known prior to this series, that uh, a lot of U2's music and, and Bono have really been impacted on deep levels by the Psalms. In fact, he talks in today's um, conversation about another song written based on a psalm. So today is the final day of preaching teams. Today is the final day of David and Bono. And today is the final conversation between Eugene Peterson and Bono as, again, they talk about just the authenticity of the, uh, uh, of the Psalms because the Psalms have some stuff in there about violence that is uncomfortable to us. Um, but the Bible ne never shies away from the difficult. And here's Bono and Eugene Peterson talking about violence, the Psalms, and the Scriptures. What do we do with violence? Violence in our own hearts, the sense of wanting to do violence, and the violence in the world. That's a hard question. We need to find a way to cuss without cussing. And the imprecatory psalms surely do that. They just lay it out. And uh, I just, I think they're really important. If we've got to have some way in context, and the context is the whole Bible and the whole Psalter, some way in context to tell people how um, how mad we are. So one of Eugene's uh, translations, uh, ooh, 35, punch the nose, punch the nose, is that 35? It's fantastic. And uh, punch the nose of the bullies, God. Um, but I love the idea of you've got to cuss, find a way of cussing without cussing, and you have to give vent to that. I like that. that. That's going to stay with me. Do you have songs that have given some kind of expression, narrative, poetic, to violence, to this yes. violence in us, violence in the world? Yes. And it's called Raised by Wolves, the song. And I try to make it real try to bring people to that place because it must have had an effect on me and I want to understand violence. Um, a bombing that I missed in Dublin myself, um, three car bombs timed to go off at 5.30 on a Friday night in 1974. Any other time I would have been on the street where the bomb went off because I used to travel through the city centre from going get two buses home from school. And But there was a bus strike that day and I took a bicycle. And I have no problem with the Old Testament. I don't see God as a violent God, but I think the world is a violent place, and it does reflect that. And, and it, it's a terrifying thing, some, some of the Old Testament, but, but, but it is real. 
and in a way I kind of prefer it to the airy fairy stuff where we don't get re you know we don't where we, where we don't get real is there a way to read the Psalms through Jesus's eyes that helps us understand violence or nonviolence well yeah the crucifixion where there's violence there's got to be some kind of response and is it more violence or less I'm glad we have a crosses in every room in this house but I when I look at those I think I don't think of decoration I think of this is the world we live in and it's a world with a lot of crosses and I just would like to spend my life um, doing something about that through scripture through preaching through friendship uh, and now my you know my ears are years are getting shorter and I uh, don't have nearly as many left, but I, I don't want to escape the, escape the violence. Be with us as we continue our lives of serving you with poetry, with the arts, with song, finding ways to enter into what you're doing, already doing not calculating the chances, but doing what's right there, what you've already started doing. So thank you for this day, the hours of this day. Your blessing, Lord, Lord. Give us your blessing. Amen. All right, see you guys. Okay. Bye. Don't run. <laughs> 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 I hope you've been enjoying uh, Bono and Eugene Peterson's conversation uh, as, as we've kind of walked through that. Um, and as we finish up here, we end up with probably the most, to me, the authentic part of that talk uh, and also one of the most challenging um, of what to do with violence. So let's, uh, we're going to have a little participation. I want you to keep your hand up if this is true of you. I watch the news once a week. At least once a week. Sorry, let me, yeah. All right, keep your hand up if this is true of you. I watch the news at least three times a week. Oh, a couple. All right, I watch the news at least five times a week. I watch the news every day. I watch the news multiple times a day. Yeah, I, I see you guys out there. All right. Um, growing up, um, I, we didn't watch a lot of television. Uh, actually, we watched like none, uh, except for my dad would watch the evening news a lot of times. And at 5.30, right, he would watch like the local news. And then half an hour later, he'd watch uh, the kind of the national news. And I, I was... As I'm sitting there, I'm trying to think. Have you ever kind of pondered on, on maybe childhood memories? And I'm thinking, I'm going, what did he always watch? And then it popped into my head. Reporting for the CBS Evening News, this is Dan Rather. Good night. Right? And that was, that's what he always watched. I can always remember hearing Dan Rather uh, on CBS um, talking about the world and what was going on. And um, I can think as a kid that... Uh, it didn't seem as bad back then as it is today. Like today when I watch the news, I get a little depressed. And by a little, I mean a lot, 
right? It seems like, and, and maybe it's always been around, but it seems like there's this ever-increasing amount of, like, evil and violence in our world, right? You get this when you watch it, and you just are like, our world is a mess, right? And so it, it begs the question to be asked, what's our response to, to evil and to violence in our world? What do we do with it? What's our response? What, what, should it, should, what should it be as Christians? And I'm talking more than just like uh, the evil of getting cut off on the parkway, right? More than the violence of somebody eating your sandwich at work. Uh, more than, you know, the neighbor's dog coming into your front lawn and having a business meeting and them not cleaning it up, right? I'm not, right? That's, that's little stuff. I'm talking about big things. I'm talking things that, like, when you watch them, you have, like, your pit of your stomach turn. I'm just thinking, just in my lifetime, some of the stuff that I've seen on the news, think of, like, school shootings have become the norm. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook. Remember hearing about all those? How about bombings like Oklahoma City, Boston Marathon, about 9-11, right? That hits real close to home. Like, what do we do with that? And that's only our country, in my lifetime, all of that has occurred and a lot more. And you start to look at the world at, at, as a whole, and you see murder, rape, sex trafficking, right? And it gets, most of the time, not even front-page news because it's happening so much. There was a report that came out from an Italian-based uh, Center for Studies on Religion. And they determined, I don't know, maybe some of you have seen this, that last year... 90,000 Christians were killed for their belief worldwide. Nearly a third of those, 30,000 at the hands of some sort of extremists like ISIS. 90,000 people. Christians killed for their belief. Like you read, sometimes I read like New and Old Testament and hear people getting persecuted for their faith and it seems far off. That's the world today. That's not long ago. That's today and tomorrow that that's happening. And so what do we do with it? And this is a tough subject, and I'm not going to present you with, here's the clear-cut answer. I'm going to try to help start the conversation, maybe help us think about it. But it's a tough thing to do because are we allowed to pray for justice, that those people, like that God would, would squash them? But then I got scripture on the other hand saying, love your enemy and bless those that curse you. And all of a sudden as a Christian, it's a really hard line to walk down, at least for me, I don't know for you, of what do I do with this? I want to see justice done, but I'm also called to love. And how does that look in real life? And so we're going to look at a psalm that wrestles with this a little bit. Um, if you heard Eugene Peterson when he was talking um, to Bono, he mentioned the uh, imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are psalms that um, at least some part of them 
uh, asks God to basically destroy, wipe out, uh, Kill um, some of the language. We won't read these, but if you want to read hard psalms, read 35 and 109. Two hardest psalms to read because the writer calls out to God, Would you destroy these wicked, evil people? And the language that he uses is really rough. And so the imprecatory psalms are this cry to God to say, I want to see justice. And so the psalm we're going to look at today is Psalms 52. And 52 doesn't have the hardest language to wrestle with, but it might have one of the hardest backstories to wrestle with. Because we are given when David, David wrote it, exactly what was happening when he wrote it. And so we're going to spend more of our time looking at the backstory than actually the psalm, because I think we'll read it in a while, but I think the backstory really gives you an understanding of what he was going through at the time. So uh, it says that David wrote this um, after he had an encounter with Doeg the Edomite. All of you know who that is? Blank stares, right? Chuckles. Um, you don't know it, and rightfully so. You find it in two chapters in the Bible. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 Read it when you get home. It's, it's a pretty unique story, and I'll tell it to you here. Um, I love, if you ever never notice, I love telling stories. It's a way that has always spoken to me, and I like to communicate through that. So let me tell you the story of Doeg the Edomite um, and the issue that arises for David during that. You can find that in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. It starts with King Saul is the king over the Israelites. That's the chosen people of God. He's the first king that has been established. Uh, the people were asking God, give us a king, give us a king. And God's like, okay, I'm going to give you a king. Um, and so he gives them Saul. And Saul is this big, tall, good-looking guy. Um, and it says that he starts to lead Israel. And he leads them out into battles. Into battles versus enemy nations. One of those being the Philistines. Do you remember the Philistines? Do you remember the champion of the Philistines in one of those stories? We get Goliath, right, the giant. And as they're fighting, you remember the story. Goliath comes out and he's cursing God and cursing the Israelites. And everyone's afraid of him. And then we get this boy David that comes on the scene. You remember this? And David slays the giant, right, with a sword. Uh, well, with a sling, right? And he hits him. And it says he takes the sword from Goliath and... Chops his head off. It's a great kid story. Um, we leave some of that out, right? But he, he, he defeats the giant, and he then gets pulled into Saul's inner court. He becomes uh, a little bit of a celebrity, uh, begins to gain notoriety with the people. And as he does so, Saul is watching him. And at first, they seem good together, but it says that Saul starts to become jealous of David. And so much so, at one point, Saul tries to get David killed. And he sends him out into the army where he knows he's going to die in this one battle. But David comes back like, no sweat. God's with me. And the people just sing his praises all the more. Which, if you can imagine, causes Saul to be even more jealous of David. And soon Saul gets his mind so twisted that he thinks that David is after his throne. And that was distracting. Um, 
And so he thinks David is after his throne. And so, at one point, they're sitting around the dinner table. Family dysfunction at its best. He pulls a spear out, and it says he tries to pin David against the wall. Two times he tries. And eventually, it gets so hostile, the relationship gets so bad, even though David continues to say, I am doing, like, I am for you, I'm not against you. I am on your side, I am a servant of the king. But Saul has this twisted in his mind. And so it causes David to have to flee. And this is where, in 1 Samuel 21, we pick up. It says that as David flees, as he runs, he goes to the city of Nob. The city of Nob is known as kind of a priestly city because the tabernacle is there. And so as David comes up, he comes to the priest of the tabernacle. Um, his name is escaping me. Ahimelech. He comes to Ahimelech. David comes to Ahimelech and he says, I need, I need supplies. And Ahimelech, it says, is very nervous. And he looks at David, and he knows that David is like semi-royalty. And he's like, why are you alone? Like, what's going on? We have um, our boys' bedroom upstairs. It's right above the living room. And so when I'm sitting down there, you can hear basically everything coming from upstairs. Maybe some of you know what this is like. And you'll hear, like, I hear a huge crash upstairs. And I'll yell, what's going on? And I'll get, nothing, everything's fine. Right? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? This is David coming to the priest. And the priest is looking, and he's like, what's going on? And David said, everything's fine. I'm on a secret mission for the king. Uh, but I need some supplies. I need, I need some food. And Himelech says, I don't have anything for you. All I have is, is some Basically, holy bread or bread of the presence. It's the bread that was placed in the tabernacle before God. And when it was taken out, only the priests were allowed to eat it. He says, this is all I have. And David said, well, I, I can take that. And so Abathar is, is kind of hesitant, but he's David. And so he gives David the bread. And then David asks, do you have a weapon, a sword, or a spear? The warrior asking the priest for a sword or a spear. And the priest says, I have nothing, well, I have one thing. I have the sword of Goliath wrapped in the back. Goliath that you killed. I like that he adds that. Like David forgot that he slayed a giant when he was like 15. Like that was, oh, I, I forgot. Goliath who? Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Uh, he doesn't say that. He says, yes, I'll take the sword. There is none like it. And so he has the bread and he has a weapon and it says that he leaves. And this little interaction would probably be trivial in the story of David, except that I left out one verse. It's found in 1 Samuel 21.7. And it says that Doeg the Edomite was there at the tabernacle and that he saw David and that Doeg the Edomite was a servant of Saul and his chief shepherd. Ever watch a movie, um, and as you're watching it, especially early on, the camera maybe focuses on an object that seems small, trivial, or maybe it's a person that seems insignificant, but they focus a little bit too long, and you're going, they're, they're going to come around again, or, or that's, a, that's an important piece of this. This is how this verse gets popped in, that it's like, just remember this, this is going to be important. 
And so we find out this guy named Doeg the Edomite. Uh, they always call him Doeg the Edomite, meaning he's not from Israel. He's not Jewish. He's from Edom, which was at war with Israel. And he somehow has come into the position of leadership with Saul. It says that he's the chief shepherd or herdsman, uh, meaning not that he has the most cattle or sheep, um, but that most likely the king, who would have had tons of livestock, would have had men watching those livestock, and that Doeg would have been over all of those men watching them. And it would have been a very important position. And so Doeg the Edomite somehow has gained uh, counsel with the king. Right? He can talk to the king. He's one of his trusted uh, people. And it says that in other Jewish literature, not in scripture, but this is in Jewish literature, that Doeg was known to be highly intelligent, that he was quick with, with his tongue, um, that he could ask Ask 300 questions off of one rule. It says so many that he'd make the scholars blush because of how witty and, and, and conniving he was. And it said also that he was always ready to lie or slander somebody to get ahead. Okay? Tuck that nugget away. You're going to need to remember that. And so the story continues. And in the next chapter, it has Saul... Uh, the king sitting under this tree with some of his men and guards surrounding him. And he starts berating them saying, all of you are with David. You're all conniving against me. You're out to get me. You're out to destroy me. You're lying in wait with David looking for an opportunity to take me down. And they're sitting there and it says none of them are saying anything. Did you ever talk to kind of a crazy person, maybe a little bit crazy, and they start going on and you just start... Right, just kind of keep quiet. Right, this is Saul. Saul is getting himself so twisted over David and what David's doing, where David is constantly saying, I'm not trying to take your crown. And then he's fleeing from Saul, and Saul is pursuing and hunting him down. And this is where we get Doeg the Edomite popping up again. And it says, Doeg the Edomite spoke up. And he says to Saul, I saw David. I know where he went. He went to Nob. And he went to the priest, Abathar. And the priest gave him food. And he gave him a weapon. And then he prayed to God on his behalf. You can imagine, like that just sent Saul over the top. And so Saul is irate. And he says, call the priest. Call all of them here. And so Abathar and the other priests come. And Saul starts accusing them. You talked to God on David's behalf. You gave him provisions. You gave him a weapon. And Abathar goes, whoa, whoa. He goes, isn't David one of your most loyal and trusted servants? Isn't he your son-in-law? Forgot to share that, right? David is married to Saul's daughter. He is literally royalty. He's married in. Abathar continues, he goes, David is the head of your guard. Right? David is the most trusted guy you have. And as far as praying for him, I've done that tons of times. This isn't the first. But Saul doesn't want to hear it. 
Have you ever had to talk to somebody about an issue, and even if you've presented all the facts in opposition of their belief, they're still holding on to it, right? Don't confuse me with the truth, right? I know what I know, right? And this is Saul. He's got this so twisted that David is out for his crown and out to kill him. And so he turns to his guards and he says, kill Abathar and the rest of the priests. And the guards now, I can imagine, are kind of listening, seeing what's going down. And it says that all of them just stand there and nobody lifts a hand. These are the royal priests. They have a, a holy lineage. This is the people that talk to God on our behalf. I'm not touching these guys. It says that the soldiers stand there and do nothing. But it says that Doeg the Edomite is there as well. And Saul turns to Doeg and he says, kill them. They're conspiring against me. And it says that Doeg takes the sword and he slays Abathar and 84 other priests. Think about this for a second. If you remember what Abathar said to David... I have no weapons except for the sword of Goliath. And he handed the sword to David. These are men with no weapons. These are men that were most likely in priestly robes. And while the other Israelite soldiers wouldn't touch him, Doeg the Edomite most likely sees a way in with Saul the king. No problem. Says he murders the priest and everybody with him. It says then he goes to the city or town of Nob, and he puts the entire city to sword. It says men, women, children, cattle, donkey, and sheep. You ever read stuff that is just hard to read? He goes in there and he kills everyone. He wipes the town out because they've been associated with David and Saul, this is a way I can get in with Saul, right? And he kills them. This is mass murder. This is cold-blooded, right? This is harming of the innocent. It says that one person escapes. It's the son of Abathar. It says that he flees and he runs. And he meets up with David and he tells David what happened. And David said, I knew something was going to happen when I saw Doeg the Edomite there. I knew this was going to happen. He said, I've caused this. He said, it's my fault. Can you imagine the anguish and pain that David would be sitting in? Not only is this king who you have uh, given everything for, went to battle for, turned against you, and tries to kill you personally, but now he's killing everyone you're coming in contact with. And out of that is where we get Psalms 52. It said that the psalm is written by David for the director of music, which is crazy a little bit. And it says it's, a, it's, it's when Doag tells Saul about David and Ahimelech. And this is the psalm. And so let's read it. It's Psalms 52. It's nine verses. Uh, they'll put it up on the screen. It says this. Why do you boast in evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? 
You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear, and they will laugh at you, saying, Here is how a man, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. This is often how an imprecatory psalm actually goes. It first states the offense, the evil, the wrong. God, here's what's going on. This is evil. This is terrible. And then often the next is, I want you to do something about it. God, please have justice. Right? He says, destroy them. Bring them to ruin. Pluck them out of their tent. Bring them down. And then almost always, it concludes with this statement of faith, this statement that I will trust in you, in the hope of you, that you are a good God, I will trust in your name. And so I read that, and I hear the story behind it, and here's what I think. Am I allowed to pray that? When I see evil in the world, am I allowed to pray that as a Christian, you know, in the new covenant? That's a hard, I don't know. It's hard. And I think to really answer that, you have to look at a couple of scriptures, and we'll just look at two. You want to make sure that, you know, you see the scripture in context. So in Romans, in the New Covenant, Paul is writing uh, to the people of Rome, and he says this, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. In Luke 3, you find John the Baptist baptizing people, and he's calling them to repent, to turn from their sin. And as they do, they're coming up to him saying, I repent, I'm baptized, what do I do? How do I live? And you're, interesting enough, you find Roman soldiers coming up to him saying, how do I live? What should I do? And he doesn't tell them, leave the army. He doesn't tell them to flee their post. Instead, he says, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your wages. He goes like, use where you're at for good. Don't abuse this power. And so somehow we see that God has established this side of heaven, rulers and authorities, to protect the helpless, to bring justice. So for most of us, we go, I can get on board with that. But then it also, think of the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say on the Sermon on the Mount? It says, pray for your enemies. 
bless those that curse you. And so on one hand, I have this cry to God when we see evil and violence that you would have justice, that you would have justice now, that you would make the wrongs right. But we also have a call to love our enemies. I don't have, right, this, if you're being honest in Christian faith, to me, this is hard. Where do I stand on this? How do I pray? Do I pray that ISIS would all be converted and, and come to Mendham Hills Community Church? Or like, do I pray that we drop a bomb on them and they're all wiped out? Do I pray somewhere in between? That's a hard question. We'll wrap up with telling you the end of the kind of the turmoil between David and Saul, and maybe this will give um, some idea of what we do. Uh, ben, if you want to come up, uh, as, I, as I say that this last part, and I'll let you know. It says that David um, keeps fleeing Saul, but as he does, Saul keeps pursuing. And there comes two times that David could take personal revenge on Saul for the wrong that he's done to him. If you remember the story, there's one time that David's in a cave and Saul, as he pursues him, goes into the cave. And David is so close to Saul, it says that he cuts a piece of his robe off, just the corner. And then when Saul leaves, David comes out of the cave and says, Look, look how close I was to you. I could have taken your life, but I want peace. I'm not trying to harm you. The second story, the same thing. It says Saul is sleeping in his camp. It says that David and a friend sneak into the camp and they stand over Saul as he's sleeping. And the friend says to David, let me take the spear. Let me kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. And David says, no, I'm not taking his life. Instead, he says it takes the weapon of Saul and a water jug sitting by his head. And the next day, he goes again to Saul and kind of calls out, Look, you were sleeping. I was standing over you. And I could have taken revenge. I want peace. Ultimately, if you know the story of Saul and David, you see that Saul ends up dying in battle. And that David is eventually vindicated and is crowned king of Israel. And Jesus comes from David's line. I think God can take our prayers and our cry for justice. In fact, I think it's healthy to call on God and voice our frustration and our fear. To voice our need for him, the almighty creator and sustainer of life, to do something. I think we're given room in scripture to love our enemies, yet seek justice and be a part of that justice here on this earth in the context of the authority that is set up. When we see evil and violence in the world, it should be natural to feel pain and anger. We should voice it to God. God is big enough to hear our cries, big enough to hear how much it hurts and what we, how much we want to see justice done. But I think as David so often did when he wrote these, he always partnered it with, I trust you, God. That my hope is in you. 
that I don't have, right? I don't have the ability to make all this happen, but I believe in you. And it's not just a passive, I will do nothing, right? But it's a statement of faith in our creator. So I think when we see news and we watch that and we see the evil and the violence in the world, we are allowed to voice our frustration over what's happening and ask God for justice, but then to ultimately say, I will have faith in you.